Welcome back to another episode of Candid Cardboard. This is a series here at Bytewing Games where we get candid with the cardboard, sharing my first impressions of newish board game releases. Now, I'm coming to find that being a Reiner Knizia fan is much like being a fan of eating. You're constantly hungry for more, and there's always new and exciting flavors to explore. So today, we'll sandwich Nadavalier between these hunks of Reiner game bread, specifically Whale Riders, Royal Visit, Modern Art the Card Game, Yellow and Yangtze, and Whale Riders the Card Game. My name is Nick Murray, and this is the Bitewing Games Podcast. going to start things off talking about Whale Riders, the board game, which I have three plays of now. Whale Riders is top tier for Kinesia family games. Dead simple rules, gorgeous illustrations, a charming theme, speedy turns, and a tense tempo are the secret ingredients to this fantastic new game. Like many of Kinesia's best, here you take two actions of your choice on your turn. These action options include sail forward one port, purchase one tile from your current port, with the oldest tiles being cheapest and newer tiles sliding down to replace what you purchase. Take a coin, discard any cards from your hand, or fulfill any contracts in your hand. Now keeping a rapid pace along the coast is just as important as using your actions efficiently, and these two urgent needs are usually at odds with each other. Fulfilling contracts is obviously best performed when you can fulfill all three cards in your hand with one action. But those fulfillments also grant you more money, which you'll desperately need now to draft the best tiles before your opponents can claim them. If you take the cheap tiles this turn, then the better tiles will slide into those cheap positions for you to claim next turn, but you can save an entire turn if you just pay a little extra for what you really need now. There is a deliciously relentless push and pull between the players and the mechanisms. We've also found that the added variant of objective tiles, known as the clan's decree, adds another layer of decisions to this space. Alternatively, I've heard complaints about the variable powers variant, known as the magic of the whales, feeling unbalanced and strategically restrictive, so we have not tried the magic of the whales yet. One of the monumental achievements of this title is just how quickly it can be taught and played. Of course, you have to keep in mind that Whale Riders features a player-driven tempo, which widens the possible range of playtimes. But my most recent session was set up, taught, played, and finished in under 25 minutes. This is one of those contortionist designs that feels like a standard event game, yet mystically folds itself into an itty-bitty chunk of time. For how little it cost me in money, time, and shelf space, I almost feel like a board game bandit who has stolen far more value than he deserves. Last year, I spent an article reflecting on all the Kickstarter projects I had backed up to that point and their marketing effectiveness on me and my fellow backers. This blog post is titled How to Win Backers and Crowdfund Projects, a Case Study, which you can find on our website at bitewinggames.com. Whale Riders was one of those projects that I reflected on within that post. Yet I was puzzled how a gorgeous game with a solid pedigree underperformed compared to many other games I had evaluated. My conclusion was that Whale Riders simply lacked an obvious standout hook. Yet, the thing that is important to understand about Whale Riders, and Reiner Knizia games in general, is that the hook is embedded and concealed within the gameplay itself. What appears to be a far too basic, generic game 
of moving along a track, buying tiles, and fulfilling contracts is in reality an acrobatic battle of wits across a tightrope of juicy decisions. It's the hidden interactions, decisions, and realizations, like a mystical whale that suddenly breaks through the water surface, emerging from the dark sea, that remind us again and again and again why we should never judge a Kinesia design before we play it, and play it multiple times for good measure. My current rating for Whale Riders is 8.5 out of 10. Since we're on the topic of Reiner Kinesia's Whale Riders, we might as well talk about Whale Riders the card game, which I have two plays of so far. While they share the same name, theme, and art, Whale Riders the card game is a very different beast from its bigger board game sibling. In fact, this card game is actually the older of the two games. It is a re-implementation of a card game from the year 2000 called Trendy. Whale Riders the card game is a simple deck of cards containing five types of goods. Shells, kelp, meat, pots, and pearls, arranged from least to most valuable. Each type also contains one bonus, double card, and one storm card. So, it's a very easy game for players to grasp what is in the deck and track the general progress of played and unplayed cards. It's a game of investing, where only one goods type will score at a time, the good that reaches its numerical threshold, and everything else that has been played in front of players will end up wasted in the discard pile. So you obviously want to work with some opponents to play goods that score points for the cards you've invested in, while ensuring that other opponents' cards go to waste. There's certainly an art to enticing others to join in on your risky pots or pearls by the way you lead around with an intentional card and give off an air of confidence in your secret hand. I may only have three pearl cards to put toward the required seven to score, but if I can get the ball rolling and sweet-talk my neighbor into joining in on the fun, then we've really got a shot at scoring big with the pearls. This is where the heart of Whale Riders the Card Game's fun lies. It's not so much in clever hand management or thinky card play, both of which are strictly limited to their simplest forms here. Rather, this is a card game all about nudging, enticing, scaring, and gaming your opponents in a breezy, light-hearted way. That may not be enough for this game to satisfy some folks, but for me, this one stays fast enough, we're talking 10 minutes per play here, and fresh enough, because the advanced game, also known as the full game, comes with event cards that change up the feel of each round, that I quite enjoyed the light, above-the-table meta it provides. Admittedly, I think the original theme of trendy fashion designers and original game length of playing to 100 points worked better for the design than this new Whale Riders theme of purchase consolidation and this new shorter game length of one time through the deck. But Whale Riders absolutely has better art. It includes the new event cards known as ports, and it still suggests the 100-point version as a long game variant. So I think it's a net positive re-implementation overall. Just be aware that some people have minor gripes about the Storm and Bonus double cards being too visually subtle and thus occasionally flying under the brain's radar as regular goods. For a game as quick, simple, and accessible as this, I find that I'm happy to hold on to Whale Riders the card game and break it out with the right folks who enjoy engaging each other as much as or more than the game. Yet, if I want to dive into a game of shared incentives and subtle screwage, I'm more likely to opt for something even meatier, like Irish Gage or Modern Art. My current rating for Whale Riders the card game is 7 out of 10. Now speaking of Modern Art, let's talk about Modern Art Card Game, which I have one play of so far. Once again, we're talking about an old Kinesia card game made anew, 
only instead of being a complete re-implementation, this one is simply an updated production featuring even more modern arts. Those who are familiar with modern art, the board game will find much of the same DNA here in its card game offspring. There are still five artists whose work is represented on tarot-sized cards, which are played one at a time from players' hands to end up in a personal collection. Only instead of using auctions to get these cards from a player's hand to any player's collection, the auctions are completely stripped away and your only option is to play these cards directly into your own collection. With the focus being shifted from smorgasbord bidding to hand management, the cards also feature some more effects when played, such as earning another card from the deck into your hand, adding a second card of the same artist to your collection, or playing a face-down card to your collection for an added dollop of mystery to the proceedings. The key is to play cards from your hand in the round when they will be the most valuable. Yet no value is set in stone until the sixth card of an artist is played and the top three played suits of the round are paid out. The interesting scoring mechanism is still here in full force, where an artist's work can increase in value over time as long as they continue to place in the top three. Likewise, the tricky decision of how long to save these works of art in your hand and when exactly to play them is alive and well. Yet your hand seems to lose a lot of its impact compared to modern art the board game when these cards no longer present an opportunity for a profitable auction. For what many people including myself consider to be a legendary auctioning game, it's rather jarring to have the beating heart of that game ripped out and cast aside where players are left with a lifeless corpse of a card game to explore. To be fair, this is a Reiner Kinesia card game and his steady hand ensures that there is a solid design here to be enjoyed. Yet its inspiration casts a long shadow over this small box that leaves me wondering when and why I would ever choose to play the card game over the board game. The answer? I wouldn't. Modern art the card game retains much of the clever cogs and pretty production of its heritage, yet loses the heart of the board game and struggles to stand out as a worthwhile card game among my collection, which is why my current rating of it is 5.5 out of 10. Now we've made it through our first slice of Reiner Knizia bread, and we're on to the meat of this episode, Nedavalier, which I have two plays of. While it's not as accessible as Splendor, Nedavalier is significantly more interesting to me. The five different types of cards and their scoring styles take some getting used to, and the heroes contain a whole bunch more unique symbols that make for a lot to digest in the first play. But for a game that plays in under an hour, you'll be up and running very quickly and likely have mastered all the symbology and need no reference sheet after only a few plays. The core loop of Nadavalier, secret bidding with coins and upgrading unused coins, is where this one really stands out from the pack. Splendor can keep its fancy plastic chips and Gizmos its magical marbles and Century its cubes. I'll take Nadavalier and its cardboard bidding coins any day. While the concept here is novel, I'd like to see auctions feel even more tense and meaningful. After my first play, I had hoped that I would gain a better grasp of the relative values of each card. While that did happen, I didn't find my increased experience changing the feel or tension of the auctions by much. I wonder if the strengths of the bidding mechanism are somewhat undercut by being paired with drafts that lack significant consequences. Between the three taverns of each round, it's not uncommon for me to feel apathetic about the drafting options of one or two of the taverns. Everything gets you points, and going for lots of the same color can get you more points, while going for a variety of colors can earn you hero cards, which also help generate points. So the consequences of each auction range from good to great, and very rarely stray outside of that comfort zone. 
Nadavalier certainly follows the tried and true path of being a safe game with an intriguing mechanism mixed in. These games always catch an ooh or an ah when their singular clever concept is revealed during the rules explanation. But they also struggle to achieve poignantly memorable moments or a wide emotional range. It's an interesting balance that designers must face where making a broadly appealing game can lead to increased sales and popularity at the expense of the design's dynamic personality and potent flavor. The sharp edges of a design are often what keep a game from feeling dull. Go figure. While the Devilier perhaps suffers from being tunnel-visioned on fun optimization to some extent, it still comes together as a solid package and worthwhile experience for me. The unanimously scowling dwarves across literally every single card in the deck may hint at the somewhat monotone gameplay lurking beneath. But the addictive loop of bidding and upgrading coins is strong enough on its own merits to disguise its shortcomings. To their credit, the creators have released an expansion, Thingvalir, that promises to make auctions more meaningful by awarding the highest bidder with an additional drafting option from a separate pool of cards known as the Camp. Once we've tried it, I'll be sure to report back on how it changes the experience for me. Currently, my rating of Nadavalir is 7.5 out of 10. Well, there's the meat of this podcast sandwich for you. Now we're back onto another slice of Reiner Kinesi bread. But worry not, this is freshly baked and delicious bread. We're going to talk about Royal Visit, which I have three plays of. Now, just when I thought I already had plenty of great tug-of-war games, particularly two-player ones, including Blitzkrieg, Watergate, Mandala, and Battleline, here comes Royal Visit, bursting open the saloon doors and demanding a place in my collection. The publisher Yellow thoroughly crushed the production here, from the colorful cloth boards to the chunky block figures. And Reiner crushed the concept within this design. As their dense pieces suggest, every character has a weighty purpose, an incentive to pull it further in your direction along this track. The guards are the boundaries for the king's movement, and one must draw the king into the palace on their end of the board to win the game. Yet the other way to win is to move the crown token into your palace, and the crown moves toward you every turn that you have any other figure in your palace, or the entire court, comprised of the king and his two guards, on your half of the board. The Jester and Wizard each have unique special abilities that can be used instead of playing cards on your turn, so it's always beneficial to have them closer to you, where they can do more damage with their abilities. While you are limited to playing one type of card on your turn, and moving the matching figure as many spaces as the numbers on the cards you play, the Jester's ability, when chosen, makes his cards wilds for any other single card suit of your choice. And he has the most movement-heavy numbers on his cards. The problem is that the Jester has to be between your end of the board and the King to use this ability, so you frequently have to play the very cards you wish to save for a massive wild movement just to get him into position. Meanwhile, you can use the Wizard's ability to teleport any other figure, excluding the Jester, to the Wizard's position. But remember, the King must remain within the boundaries of the guards. So if you want to teleport the King to the Wizard, you'll already have to have a guard past the Wizard. While the King's cards feel the weakest, There are only ever ones to move the king. You can actually also play two king cards to move the entire court one space. That's the king and his guards one space. This is the only way to move two types of figures in one turn, and it can be super useful in the right moments. The two guards have their own interesting wrinkle in that you can always split your movement cards between them, whether you play jester cards as wilds or guard cards. It's important to pull the guard on your side closer to increase your king's movement potential while lassoing the opposite guard in to prevent massive king-stealing plays from your opponents. Aside from welcoming the king or the crown into your palace, the third way to win is in a tense tiebreaker that triggers the moment the deck has been depleted for the second time. At that point, 
Whoever has the king on their half of the board wins, and all other progress you made with the crown or other characters doesn't matter. For a game that takes 10 to 20 minutes to play and fits snugly inside a small box with a useful insert, it doesn't get much better than Royal Visit. My current rating is 8 out of 10. Finally, we're going to wrap this episode up with Yellow and Yangtze, which I have one play of so far. Well, it's not exactly a new release, but 2018 isn't too far behind us yet. Plus, I think we can make an exception here, considering this post is already riddled with Kinesia game impressions, and I can't resist talking about the sister game to my number three favorite game of all time, Tigris and Euphrates. Now, Yellow and Yangtze, just wow. What a freaking masterpiece. You know the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or don't spoil a good thing, or how about the grass is always greener on the other side. All the wisdom in the world should have stopped Reiner from touching his untouchable design. Yet here we are, and thank goodness he didn't listen to that wisdom. Yellow and Yangtze is the Tigris and Euphrates doppelganger, alternate timeline or long-lost twin. It's a modernization of Reiner's greatest work, yet it's not a replacement. I wouldn't put one above the other as they both share the same delicious core, yet provide distinct flavors. Yellow and Yangtze is definitely something you can't approach with the same strategy as Tigris and Euphrates, but the fundamental similarities make me naturally want to approach it in the same way. With Tigris and Euphrates, I love to plot and scheme my way into massively lucrative wars that swing the pendulum of momentum in my favor. These huge wars are still present in Yellow and Yangtze, yet they are significantly streamlined and overshadowed by the even more important and fleeting pagodas. In Tigris and Euphrates, the civilizations are like a slowly rising pile of snow that eventually collapse into an insane avalanche of tiles and points. In Yellow and Yangtze, the civilizations are more comparable to a winter parking lot that is blanketed with fresh snow every few hours, but regularly shoveled and salted. The thing to appreciate about Yellow and Yangtze is how Reiner has infused every tile type with purpose outside of its universal use. In fact, these tiles required more purpose when he also streamlined the wars down to using the red military tiles only. That's probably one of the key takeaways here. Yellow and Yangtze is undoubtedly the more streamlined version of the two games. The trickiest thing for people to grasp and wrap their minds around and understand the ramifications for is the wars. Yet wars have been reeled in here to a single battle between two kingdoms using their red military might only. And the fallout of wars is less destructive for the losing side and less rewarding for the winning side. These tweaks serve to make the game a less strategic and more tactical affair. Not better, not worse, just refreshingly different. Bouncing back from a heavy blow is much faster and easier here, and the landscape of leaders across the board is more rapid, dynamic, and fluid. Unused leaders are given purpose, and unwanted tiles are given value. Rather than flying low for many turns waiting to strike a single fatal blow like in Tigris and Euphrates, you're better off pouncing on the fleeting opportunities of each round in Yellow and Yangtze. If you can even spot them, of course. It seems as though every Tigris and Euphrates complaint that someone would have regarding luck of the draw, value of the tiles, usefulness of leaders in the late game, brutality of the conflicts, etc. has been considered and addressed in one way or another here. And somehow, that doesn't make Yellow and Yangtze superior to Tigris and Euphrates for me. It's merely a Yang to Reiner's masterful Yin. See what I did there? Between the low-key enormous shift to hexagon spaces from squares and the shocking addition of yellow tiles providing wild points, there's an entirely new pool of possibilities to explore. Many will plant their flag on one side of the fence or the other, but I think I prefer to sit on the fence itself and enjoy the panoramic view. My current rating for Yellow and Yangtze is 10 out of 10. 
And as a side note, if either Yellow and Yangtze or Tigers and Euphrates catch your interest, then the best time to jump on a copy is as soon as possible, as they are both entering the dark ages of their publishing cycle until a new publisher inevitably picks them up. And as a double side note, we got to take the board game geek plastic and bamboo tiles of Yellow and Yangtze for a spin, and they were precisely as exotic and luxurious as that sounds. Just make sure you find yourself a bigger cloth bag if you decide to upgrade your own copy, as they bafflingly left that problem up to the customer to solve. Well, how was that for a candid cardboard sandwich featuring Reiner Kinesia's newish games and a davalier? And if you're looking for more Reiner Kinesia goodness, you're in the right place. Head on over to our website, bitewinggames.com, and check out our upcoming Kickstarter campaign featuring three Kinesia games. Be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter there so you don't miss out on this killer collection. And stay tuned for next week's episode where I plan to share my top 10 filler games of all time. My name is Nick Murray, and this is the Bytewing Games Podcast. <laughs>